0: So, have we ever had Wednesday fall on a Christmas? Or perhaps the more idiomatic way to say that would be Have we ever had Christmas fall on a Wednesday? In other words, on the day that we traditionally release our show. That has never happened.
1: I don't the think five it has. Years.
0: No, we would remember that. One of these days, I want us to do a Christmas show.
1: Is, is, is Christmas
0: because on a I Wednesday know the, this year? No, it's not. Okay. And I was just regretting that fact. But one of these days, we're going to have to do a Christmas show. And in lieu of a flagship Christmas show, uh, we have instead a Christmas Patreon bonus. At least I want this to be Christmas themed. Okay. And I have, um, show and tell, I have a Christmas decorative object that my wife put out for the first time yesterday Okay. that I love. I'm kind of obsessed with it. And I want to show it to you over Zoom. I look forward to seeing it. Helen's folks, my wife's parents, recently sold their house and divided up furnishings that they weren't taking with them into retirement among the the family, right? And so Helen, who is uh, Christmassy as fuck, Helen, <laughs> Helen is the Christmassiest person you will ever meet. Uh, yeah made a beeline for the Christmas ornaments, for the things that would be put up at Christmas time and brought a bunch back. And there was one particular object where she asked her father and brother who were also there, like, do you guys want this? And they were like, no, you do? <laughs> like, they thought it was like a really homely, not very valuable piece. She showed it to me actually when she brought it home in the summer. And I was like, yeah, whatever. It's a nice brown pot okay. looking thing. Kind of looks like a brown pot, but then yesterday she put it out. Helen christmas the fuck out yesterday. A whirling dervish of Christmas cheer. And she (laughs) decorated our house and put up all our beloved Christmas decorations. Just so the folks at home know, I fucking love Christmas. Yeah. It is, in fact, the most wonderful time of the year. Yeah. Anyway, so I'm going to show you the object. Uh, I oh I need to I need to do self view so I can see if I am showing it off effectively. Right. I always turn off self view because I always catch myself making uh, talking to make, yourself.
1: Yeah. I think the first fa- making the f- faces. The first six episodes that we recorded, I think we were both had self view on, and I think we spent all those. Recordings, just staring at
0: ourselves, talking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the brain trust. Yeah. That is exactly. weird studies. Yep. Okay, so check check this shit out. Okay, so it's like,
1: what I'm seeing is a is it clay? Looks like yeah, it's, clay a cl- pot. it's a clay
0: pot, about seven inches tall, five inches wide, maybe. And there's a street scene of like, yeah. maybe a little old, you know, town, village... Yeah. And there are little holes cut in the clay where the windows are. The houses are themselves kind of scratched into the clay. And there's a little bit of glazing on rooftops so that, you know, you can have a little bit of like snowy rooftops. Mm-hmm. And then there are holes in the clay where the windows go. And it's a luminaria. So I've got a little candle inside. And you can see the light winking out of the windows as I turn I love it the luminaria around. And when Helen put it out, number one, I was like, that's fucking awesome. I love that thing. And number two, I've got to show this to JF because my yeah. intuition told me, if anybody appreciates this, it will be JF. It's, it's the windows. It's the fact that you
1: can it's, look into it.
0: <laughs> it's the windows. <laughs> exactly. That's why I knew you were going to like this. Yes. Because we had had that conversation back in, uh, I think it was our on presence episode. The one that we did like in. Drunk. Person yeah. Yeah. When we were drunk. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and we were super into the idea of like looking into the tree. Yeah. And that came up recently on the fan discord. That's an idea that people have picked on on occasion. And. yeah, um, People have brought that up again. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. And so I was like, so, you know, Helen put all of the lights and bulbs and things on the Christmas tree, and uh, this is how you know she is uh, true to this shit, ain't new to this shit when it comes to Christmas, that she just intuitively knows the truth that you have to put some of the lights way inside the tree. Way inside, yes.
1: And you know, now that we've done how many, what On presents was like episode... 30 or something? 21 or something. Yeah, early. So we've talked about a lot of things, but I think in a way that that little conversation we had about looking into the Christmas tree, it hits on one of the the central truths that we have stumbled upon in our uh, peregrinations. And I will read you a quote from...
0: Nice. ...Galileo. Whoa, that would, I was thinking like Arthur Machen, Yeah, maybe? no, no, Galileo. Macken, fuck. Yeah. Will I ever <laughs> pronounce that motherfucker's name correctly? You do it on purpose. No, it's a source <laughs> of constant irritation. This is from uh, an article on Aeon
1: that appeared um, uh, called uh, Small Things. The discovery of a microscopic world shook the foundations of theology and created modern demons. Very cool article by a science historian, Philip Ball, British science writer. Um, Anyways, at one point he's talking about the trauma of the early modern discoveries of the microbial world. And one of the things that shocked these people was that God, the creator, had put so much work in things no one would ever see unless they donned strange technological appendages and so uh, there's a kind of um, theological shock there, and so he, I'm quoting the article now. When Galileo used one of the first microscopes to study insects, he was astonished and repelled, writing to his friend Federico Ceci, C- Casey, in 1624 uh, that, quote, "I have observed many tiny animals with great admiration, among which the flea is quite horrible. the mosquito and the moth very beautiful. In short, the greatness of nature. And the subtle and unspeakable care with which she works is a source of unending contemplation. And what I love about that is that Galileo there is coming upon the non-human, a stratum of reality that has all the accoutrements of what the human world has, aesthetic beauty, value, form, shape, all the secondary qualities are just waiting there to be discovered But may as well never have been discovered. We could have gone on forever, as far as they were concerned, without ever knowing this stuff. And I think that looking into the Christmas tree for me is like looking at because what I I think if I try to dig into the affect, what it was that I found so wonderful, and intellectualize it now, I would say that I was looking at something that's beautiful even when no one's looking at it. Hmm. It's a hidden beauty. It's a little world, all on its own. It's just there, unseen. And it's beautiful. It's luminous. Yeah. And that's what I think, that's kind of the thrill. That's the positive side of the early modern discoveries is that they're finding beauty in places where no one would ever, and ugliness, doesn't matter. It's, it's, they're finding something sublime by virtue of its having form that has never been seen. Uh, it's mm. like when you look at the pictures of the surface of Venus, right? That the Russians yeah. managed to take. It's like, this is a landscape that no human was meant to see. And yet there it is, it's got rocks and mountains and it's got all the stuff you'd expect a landscape to have. It's all set up like a set, like somebody, some set designer went there and made this amazing place, regardless of the fact that no actors would ever step onto the stage.
0: <laughs> Unless you inhabit some philosophical worldview in which uh, the actors in the stage are one and the same, that the uh, surface of Venus is enjoying itself. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's just boring, though. <laughs> um,
1: uh, no, yes, of course. You can interpret it different ways, but it's the, the, the absence. That's where looking into the Christmas tree touches on, or even look in that little clay pot you just showed, that little clay um, candle holder. It's, hmm. that it's the loneliness of the little world you're finding. The fact that it's a little world, but it's empty but it's oh, still I it's still that. full of life in a weird way it's still haunted the loneliness. it's oh, a failure that.
0: of presence right that i love that line the the loneliness of the little world yeah exactly like that's its poignancy yeah but at the same time you're looking at it now yes and so you're in the picture yeah and that changes something too but i uh Well, that's how how, how, here we'll get
1: metaphysical. Yeah. well, I mean, this is where it becomes. Oh, let's get metaphysical.
0: Well, that's the thing. It's like, well. You just served up a perfect joke line. Remember that Olivia (laughs) Newton-John song? Yeah.
1: Let's get metaphysical. (laughs) Metaphysical. (laughs) Actually, David Gilmore beat us to that. On his solo album, he had a song uh, called Let's Get Metaphysical. A terrible song. So anyways um so the y- you could argue well, was is the inside of the christmas tree there when no one is looking is the surface of venus there as it appears for the camera when no is when no, no one is looking because the camera is a point of view and therefore it kind of allows this landscape to coalesce into form so that if no one's on venus then really venus has no landscape because any thinkable landscape puts you in it. You need to be there for the landscape to be a landscape. So, you know, on what scale and from what angle would you conceive of a landscape without an observer? That's impossible. That's a fair point, right? But mm-hmm. of course, that's in a in a naive realist sense that's ridiculous. That's like saying when, you know, my fountain pens have been stowed away right now so they don't exist. Of course they exist. They're there. I know that they're there in their case. And that if I opened it, it's not like they come into being when I see them. They're just there unseen but having i know to me the realist take makes more sense but i can mm-hmm. understand the logic of a kind of idealist thing where no matter what it is it's just like the if if there is a form on venus well it just testifies to the fact that there's some kind of consciousness perceiving venus on some level right hmm. Is that where you're going, or are you going somewhere not, else?
0: Not at all, but oh, I'm very good. Gl- <laughs> <All right. laughs> no, it, I'm that's dragging really you funny. into my own hangups. Yeah. This is a classic Ford and Martell thick end, thin end thing because you went total thick end. And I was just remaining at the thin end like an idiot. Um, it's, not the more, it, it's not the more intellectual end. I, 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 I don't grant think, you. I don't know about that. I, I'm curious to know where you wanted to go. Let's well, go there. I, I was sort of like staying close to the experience. So leaving aside my little candle holder for a moment and thinking about how I feel when I walk through my neighborhood at night. Or for that matter, the Annex. You and I both have lived in the Annex region of Toronto. We live like a
1: block from one another at different times. With, you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So like when my mom lived in the Annex neighborhood and I would be out walking after dark. This is in Toronto people in case. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, this is true of any place, right? But I always found the annex particularly magical because you have these late 19th century houses with their high pointed gables, brickwork, tall windows, usually with some manner of attractive curtain behind them or, or whatever. Uh, you know, they're nice houses that present a beautiful face to the world, and there is something particularly magical. I always love looking at the little yellowy-orange rectangles of people's windows on a mm-hmm. winter's night. I yeah. fucking love that. And some of the same satisfaction. I'm, I, In fact, I'm just going to say it's the same satisfaction when I look inside the tree or where I, when I look at this little luminaria. So if you you live in the annex, people. I am staring through your motherfucking windows. (laughs) Keep your curtains Uh, closed. (laughs) And it's funny. I know I'm not the only one. Helen is the same way. And uh, there's a great story. James Marshall, who wrote a wonderful series of children's books about George and Martha, two hippos who are the best of friends. There's one uh, where George keeps peeking in Martha's window and she has to tell him off because as she says to him, there is such a thing as privacy. just about every sentence in the George and Martha stories has become a running joke between me and Helen. And we're always talking about how this one line from that story. George was fond of peeking in windows. (laughs) I am fond of peeking in windows and not, I don't want to see what people are up to. I'm not, I'm not after some rear window shit. I'm not hoping someone gets murdered uh, or, uh, you not or a has pe- sex or You're something. You're not a peeping Tom. Yeah. Okay. In fact, I prefer it if there are no human beings visible. Yeah. That's better. Um, and also I will never stop to look in a window. It has to be glimpsed. Right. And it has to be glimpsed from the sidewalk. You can't take any special advantages. You can't get off the sidewalk and creep up to the window for one thing that's really creepy and wrong. Yeah. Uh, But for another thing, it is aesthetically wrong.
1: Yeah. That's not, yeah, I know what you mean. Keep going. You can't break your, you
0: can't break your stride. You can't cheat, right? These things have to be glimpsed. Even if there are people in front of the windows, you can't be hanging around long enough to know what they're up to. Otherwise, they cease to become little worlds and they become just another fucking your world. Your
1: world. They become your, yeah. they, they, they're, they're brought into your world. And so, yeah. yeah, totally. Exactly. Yeah. They have to be glimpsed as though they were framed out, like as though they
0: were windows into yes. another world. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Absolutely. And the windowness yeah. is key. Yeah. Um, yeah. And your own Glancing participation in that situation. Like when you're walking through a neighborhood full of windows lit up with that buttery midwinter light, that light that is asserting itself bravely against the gloom and darkness of midwinter. Um, You're in that, that's a situation. Each one of those windows is a situation and you're a part of that situation, but you can only be sketchily... Present. You can. It only works if you're a ghost. If you haunt it,
1: yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just like it's like uh, there's. A, so there are two windows when you look at the window. There's the the physical window, and then there's the kind of ontological window that you can't, you know, climb over in order to get to the real window because then you break the spell. There needs right. to be like this. It's almost like a, a painting of a window, like a Hammershoy painting of an empty room with a window. There's the window in the painting. And then there's the frame of the painting as such, which allows you the distanciation um, you need to see the painting of the window as a little world. So it's like you you have to it has to be like glimpsing out of your immediate situation into these other worlds. And what's really great is that the the midwinter snowy Christmas street, right, like the, the street yeah. at that time, which is of course all adorned with lights and you have that kind of muffled quality of sound when there's snow on the ground, and you're walking into, it's almost like you're indoors, right? It's almost like you're in Mm. a gallery, and the houses are presenting you with these other lives, these other worlds. And um, like you were saying, the situation in that moment is its own form of world, but it's, it's a world that's defined by its proximity or adjacency to other worlds right? These, to these little windowed worlds. It's almost like you're in uh, a transcendental realm looking into these different little worlds. Yeah. I don't know. It's And, and of course, because you, you the first thing you said is the street is empty, right? It's an empty mm-hmm. street. Mm-hmm. If it's super crowded, if the streets, there's people milling about all over the place, the spell is broken. It's like right. you walking down an empty street lined with these windows onto other worlds, some of which are populated, some of which are not. It's like Leibniz's story about the guy who goes and sees that pyramid with all the possible fates of this one particular character, like all these possible worlds in each little cell of the pyramid. I don't know. There's something. Yeah. And I don't know what that has to do with Christmas,
0: but it has something to do with it. I don't know. I really love it. Well, I know. I love this topic. It's, it's, it does have to do with Christmas, but it also just has to do with little worlds. Like, for example, what you see through a microscope. Mm-hmm. Um Yeah. And it's yeah, it's I interesting mean, too. Think be- about
1: oh. think about the crash, right? The uh is that what you call it in English? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. look, like we have one of we those. Got, we
0: got one of those.
1: Yeah. So you've got like the, the the these little dioramas. My grandmother had a whole little kind of Swiss village that she would arrange around the Christmas tree, oh, um, nice. and it, it, it the all the houses lit up. You know, um, oh, and, and, super. and it was really cool. And I love just being in that. Just not being in. You can't be in that world. You can just stand above it like fricking Jack Torrance in The Shining, looking down at the maze and seeing his wife and kids down there. But in a totally different <laughs> spirit, uh, you're looking down into this world and somehow your spirit is projected into it. But like you say, it's only, you can only be there spectrally
0: as a kind of yes. presence. Well, it, it's, um, the charge comes from the separation, which sounds yes. very, it sounds like some kind of sexual voyeurism, but that's not what I'm, that's not what I'm after. At least I don't think that's what I'm after. Um, it's the unslakability of that thirst. It's
1: right.
0: a, a, there's a yearning for an intimacy with that little world, but if you touched it, it would disappear. If you went up to the window, if you stared too long, it would, the, the little world would disappear. Okay. And so like, yeah, you can, you can never quite get close enough to it. I, I, I got it. But, right. And that makes,
1: the reason why that's Christmassy, one possible reason is that, well, Christmas is about the advent of someone, right? Someone's coming right. into the world. And um, not until Christmas night or Christmas, well, I guess Christmas Eve is this entity born. Um, look, my, my daughters go to a Waldorf school. It's, it's really cool what they do in Waldorf in the first few years of, of your schooling. Like in junior kindergarten and kindergarten, they have these ceremonies. One of them is to reenact your birth. The whole class takes part in it, and it happens on your birthday, on a child's birthday. So instead of just singing happy birthday and giving them a cake, what they do is this thing where they have this poem and they reenact these things. And basically, the story is that each child existed as a kind of star among the stars, and each child chose their parents. So that you reenact this moment. So you stand on one side of the thing and the child comes and chooses you. So Fiona, whenever I, you know, we've talked about this before, she's like, when I was a star, you know, this and that and the other thing. (laughs) And the way the poem is written, it's that the child could see down into this world and wanted so much to come down, to be there. And that Mm. the parents were there waiting for a child and then the child chooses its parents and comes down. And it really is the same type of, feeling it's like it's like this yearning for embodiment this yearning for manifestation which i think is part and parcel of what christmas is you know mythologically speaking what it's about it's about it's about coming into the world it's about incarnation nice
0: yeah nice ah and perhaps you know the miracle of incarnation is the miracle that we're yearning for every time we stare in a window or, or stare into the heart of the Christmas tree or stare into my little luminaria, yearning to join matter. Yeah. A little world in matter. And that's what Christ does.
1: Yeah, exactly. Or Scrooge. You know, when Scrooge is disembodied, he's completely disconnected from everybody. So the ghosts take him from house to house and he looks into the windows, right? Isn't that how the story goes? And he yearns for what he doesn't have family warmth and all that. Um, Also, he feels shitty because he's condemned uh, these families to poverty and whatever. But the point being that he's on the outside looking in and the magic of incarnation, the miracle of incarnation is not just the miracle of Christ's incarnation, it's the miracle of anything's incarnation, you know, of any possibility becoming actual, actualized in, in a world. And I think that strangely, it's like when you're looking into that little world, you're seeing something incarnate. You're seeing something there, but it's also, it's emptiness is kind of waiting for your presence in a weird way. It's loneliness. Yeah. It's loneliness. Yeah. Yeah. There's that great line, that great line in the song that it's in French, but uh, it's like uh, when the annunciation happens, right? The angel comes to Mary and says, you know, do you want to do this? This is God has chosen you to bear his child. And then in this, one poem or prayer, I can't remember now. It's just very vague. There's a moment where it says, and all creation waited with bated breath, in other words, mm. for, for her answer. And she says, yes. And it's like the, the entire world was waiting for her to assent to the incarnation. And just as thinking about that in terms of what it means to become a parent, a mother in particular, I, I find that, I've always found that very touching. Mm. Is you know, the gift of existence, you know, it's something, of course, yeah.
0: some people would say it's a curse. <laughs> but, but on, on Mondays and Wednesdays and Fridays, I do not. Yeah. <laughs> I have my days marked out on the calendar, days in which I will be optimistic. Yeah. And then uh, Sunday is reserved for straight up antinatalism.
1: Right, exactly. <laughs> it's like the, yeah, yeah, it's like the old... Uh, pyromaniac who's a volunteer fireman
0: on the weekends. (laughs) Making up for, yeah. Actually, just to loop back, uh, thinking about that strange, irrational yearning, like a thirst that can't be slaked. Colin Wilson. This reminds me of, yeah, this reminds me of nothing so much as that passage in Colin Wilson, which we've read out on the show before, but I'll read it again. Yeah. So this is in Colin Wilson's book, The Occult. And, uh, He's talking about Johnson's Rasselas, Prince of Abyssinia, and uh, he writes, There's a scene in which the hero looks at the peaceful pastoral scenery of Happy Valley where he lives and wonders why he could not be happy like the sheep and the cows. He reflects gloomily, I can discover within me no power of perception that is not glutted with its proper pleasure. Yet I do not feel myself delighted. Man has surely some latent sense for which this place affords no gratification, or he has some desires distinct from sense which must be satisfied before he can be happy. So desires distinct from sense, like the, you know, it's like thirst, but, but it's not a thirst that can be satisfied with a drink of water or some latent sense for which this place affords no gratification. Like there's some faculty in us and Wilson is going to tell us that it's faculty X. Mm -hmm. Um, for which this place affords no gratification. Uh, that reminds he, me of a,
1: a line by Ligotti. It's like, a, the, what is he? He says something like, um, "the the the one virtue of this world is its power on certain occasions to suggest another."
0: <laughs> I like yeah, that. That. that's good. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. yeah. Well, and in such moments, that hidden faculty X wants gratification, but that desire is not requited. So instead, I'm just left with this bizarre thirst. Desire yearning, yeah. And Wilson writes, the latent sense is man's evolutionary appetite, the desire to make contact with reality. But that is not all. Who has not experienced this strange frustration that comes in moments of pleasure and fulfillment? As a child, I had this feeling about water. If my parents took me on a bus excursion, I used to crane out of the window every time we went over a bridge. Something about large sheets of water excited a painful desire that I found incomprehensible. For if I actually approached the water, what could I do to satisfy this feeling? Drink in it? Swim in it? So when I first read the passage from Rasselas, I understood immediately what Johnson meant by some latent sense, or desires distinct from sense, which must be satisfied before he can be happy. I have labeled this latent sense faculty X. Yes.
1: Yes. Another example of this is the opening to a talk I heard Eric Davis give on the imagination. Uh, very cool talk. I can't, I'll can't. i try to find the link and put it in the, the notes for this Patreon extra. But he starts off by saying that one of the things that's, that have always kind of ensorcelled him or fascinated him were, you know, distant vistas of beauty, right? Like you're seeing a sunset or a mist on a mountainside and you look at it and you yearn to be there, to go there. But you know that if you went there, you, you wouldn't, you would never find it when, if you were in it, you have to see it from a distance to Mm -hmm. be, to be in it. Yeah. And you can only be in it in a kind of spectral sense. And that is something that is very mysterious, very hard to explain like from a biological evolutionary perspective, Uh, you could, I mean, Freud would say that, oh, well, Colin Wilson was just yearning for the amniotic fluid of the womb. He wanted to go back to the great mother or whatever. Um, Yes. Which is okay, but why do we (laughs) want to yearn to get there? Like, you know, uh, why not yearn to get to, you know, I don't know, the pub instead? It seems to me that to reduce it to that would be to mistake the symbol for what it, the symbol is evoking, which
0: is exactly what Colin Wilson's getting at. Yeah. I had a thought there for a second and now it's gone. Fuck. Oh, we owe it to ourselves. You have to be
1: using a certain word right now that you're not using. The word is.
0: I don't know. What is the word? Your word is. Um, Oh tor, tor, tor. Te,
1: go on say uh, it. Te, testudinal testudinal I've, and mine yep. was uh I don't even know how to pronounce it. Caprine? Caprine? Caprin? Caprine? Caprine? Cap Caprin? caprine, caprine? 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 <laughs> caprine? Uh, Goat like. <laughs>
0: yeah. So uh, we've used them
1: without any context.
0: <laughs> I, I, I'm looking at this. Uh Caprine. Caprine. Right. It is pronounced Caprine. Uh yes, I, I swore before God that I would use the word testudinal. Yes. In our next episode, which is the episode on Sun's Life Metal that we recorded yesterday and that will be coming out in about nine days. Um and I have broken my vow before God. Yeah, I
1: yeah. And I committed to using Caprine. I didn't really commit to that. But well, I, I I you know but, I think you should use the word testudinal, but at some point we we need to find a way to use the word the the, the new word the neologism
0: trans-testudinal. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that so funny? Cuz it sounds like exactly the kind of shit we would do. <laughs> yeah. trans- I'm interested testudinal. in a more trans-testudinal understanding. Yes. Of this Christmas decoration that's sitting on my desk right now. (laughs) Testudinal means slow, basically. Tortoise-like. Yeah,
1: etymologically means tortoise-like, yeah. Turtle-like, yeah.
0: yeah. Um, And I do feel like it's not enough just to be talking about the word that I should be using it in a sentence. The clear opportunity afforded by talking about Sun's life metal is to talk about the testudinal pace at which those song structures unfold. It was right there. It was right there for you and you failed. And I failed. And but now I have to use it organically in the present context. Uh, the Well, certainly my attempt to think of something in response to what you were just saying is testudinal. Or actually not so much to think of something to say, but to recapture the thought that I had, but I fear that is now gone forever. Yeah. I wonder if those ideas ever come back. Like they come back, you don't recognize them. You don't know that you've already had that idea. I mean, that happens to me all the time. uh, As anybody who knows me is aware of, because I have a tendency to repeat my anecdotes in a most annoying fashion. (laughs) But uh, no, that's not true. You know, my daughter, bless her heart, is very good at telling me when she's like, you said that dad, so she's very honest about it, Yeah, uh, but other people are not, and so I have learned to recognize a certain glint in their eyes. Okay. When you... uh, or, or a lack of a glint, sort of a dullness, the opposite <laughs> of a glint, really, as, they, as a little part of them dies inside hearing me talk about the luminaria for the fifth time right, right. and it wasn't that interesting the first four times <laughs> and my anecdote winds on in testudinal fashion exactly towards a caprine conclusion <laughs> caprine. in which a goat mysteriously appears <laughs> yeah, exactly at or, the end of my anecdote or your your interlocutor just like
1: charges you and like headbutts you <laughs> minotaur style You've said it already. <coughs> Bonk. How <laughs> many times? But, you know, but there is an opportunity for you to, for you to use testimonial and it would be if you recorded the intro to the metal to the life metal show.
0: But it's, it's true. my it's my turn and I don't want to steal your word. Oh, you can steal my word. It's yeah. it's the people's word now. Right? It belongs to the people. remember i remember (laughs) it i remember the thing (laughs) so was it i mean now it's going to be so disappointing but i was just amused by this um you know what nation on okay what's the christmiest christmasiest nation on earth which national people gets the most sentimental about christmas who do you think that Hmm. would be
1: I don't know in this day and age. Um, I, I would guess it'd be a, a British, uh, in the British Isles. Yes. Bingo. Ireland,
0: England. The English. Yeah. And perhaps also the Irish and Scottish and Welsh, but certainly the English are very sentimental about Christmas. Yeah. And the English love a Christmas special. Right. As we are recording a Christmas special, um, not entirely on purpose, but it seems to have turned into that. Uh, this seems appropriate. So, like, Helen and I have been watching a show called The House UK, which is on HBO Max. And it is a reality show about an animal rescue center. And the show is just them taking dogs in, rehabilitating them, and finding them homes. And I love watching this because I love dogs. It's a sweet show. It is uh, like a relaxing half hour of watching TV with my wife before we go to bed. And apparently it's very popular in the UK, as well it might be. I can think of no people on earth more sentimental about dogs than the English. And from a certain point of view, then it makes sense that we are going to have a Christmas special edition of the Doghouse UK. Now, the thing is... You know, like any number of shows that are filmed in the UK have Christmas specials because the English do love themselves a Christmas special. I recall the last season of Ted Lasso had a Christmas special plonked in the middle of it, and doubtless more examples will suggest themselves. But when the English do a Christmas special, it's like being hosed down From a a fire hose, from a high-pressure hose, or maybe like one of those power washers. It's like being hosed down with Christmas. (laughs) You're just getting Christmas full blast. Right. It's just a whole mess of It's a farmer's grip of Christmas. Right. And also, the thing is that when there's a series, they plan for a Christmas episode. And that has to be part of their whole schedule their shooting schedule so inevitably they end up having to shoot the christmas special like in august or september or something Mm -hmm. and so the doghouse christmas special everything every available surface bedecked and bedizened with tinsel snowflake shaped cutouts with Christmas and big puffy letters and red, green, and white, like everybody's wearing ugly Christmas sweaters. The dogs are all wearing Christmas sweaters. And um I uh I respect that. I respect the intense Christmasiness of that. Mm-hmm. But it's also uh gaudy. It's, it's beyond gaudy. Yeah. It's it pushes through into the weird. If you ask me, because partly because we're seeing all of the exterior shots are in green, leafy, temperate, like they're Christmasing the fuck out and (laughs) it's like all green and leafy outside. (laughs) And so it, there's just this weird surrealist (laughs) repositioning of Christmas, like the insistence on Christmas it reminds me of how in David Lynch's films, like he is often going for a grotesque touch by having somebody make an extreme face. Yeah. Like Donna's crying face when she learns that Laura Palmer is dead. Yeah. Um, But then he will hold that for longer than another filmmaker would. Mm -hmm. We'll just hang out on that grotesque expression, which held for a second, just conveys grief held for like, 10 seconds or something, yeah, conveys, I don't know what, Become something, something else. Yeah. yeah. And I would like to nominate the Doghouse UK.'s Christmas special as a Capital W weird Christmas special, because they're making a, a face of Christmas cheer, literally and figuratively, but the whole show is like a face twisted into a rictus of <laughs> compulsory joy industrially manufactured Christmas joy (laughs) held at the length of 40 45 minutes (laughs) and it's weird